Hello, and welcome back to Somebody Call a Doctor, a podcast stemmed in curiosity, where we interview new PhDs and PhD candidates to better understand the diverse research topics being studied and talk about the impact their outcomes will have on technology and society. I'm your host, Colin Andrews. Today, we'll be talking to Kim Albrecht about information visualization and networks. Kim is a PhD candidate at the University of Potsdam in the field of media theory. As a knowledge designer and aesthetic researcher, Kim Albrecht explores the boundaries of visual knowledge in the post-digital age. We'll be talking about his research and its implications and ask him why you'd call him if somebody said, somebody call a doctor. And now welcome Kim. Kim, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Really excited to hear about your research. So why don't we just start off, uh, you can give a quick introduction about you and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. So my name is Kim Albrecht. I'm currently physically located in Berlin, where I'm doing my PhD at the University of Potsdam in the field of media theory, which is basically a sub-department of philosophy of the philosophy department. Before that, I was I did my undergraduates in design in, in a school in South Africa and my master's degree also in Potsdam, but at something we call in Germany Fachhochschule. So that's where you normally get taught in design. And that's where I did my master's. What I've seen from your work is very visual. because I, So I met you originally at Dynamic Nodes, an event in Berlin, where mm-hmm. I saw some of your beautiful visual artwork. Just is there a place that people who are listening might be able to go quickly and look at some of that work before, the, before they hear the interview? Sure. I have a website, kimarbrecht.com, where you can see all my work and where I'm collecting like new projects. And yeah, that, that's a place to, to go to. Perfect. So next to, to the PhD that I'm doing in Potsdam, I have a research position in the United States in Boston at Harvard at a small lab called the Meta Lab, which is a small humanities lab. And we're using a lot of art and a lot of design to reflect on the technological changes that are currently surrounding us and undertaken throughout society. Wow, very very interesting. So your projects range from, from what I've seen, from visualizing the relationships between galaxies to exploring the functional structures of U.S. state governments. So what are some of the commonalities in complex information structures in such different ideas? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before I started my PhD and before I had the research position that I have now at Harvard, I was working with a researcher called Laszlo Barabasi. He's a physicist and he has a lab at Northeastern University, also in Boston, where about 30 researchers work together. Most of them are, come from physics, a physics background. And the entire lab is focused on studying complex networks. So looking at data sets that look at structural systems of networks. And the interesting part for me as a designer was that this kind of lens of looking at the world through networks uh, can be applied to any kind of level. So you can look at mathematical functions as, as networks, but you can also apply it to the largest structures of the universe and anything in between. So any kind of social system can be understood as networks. And in addition to that, 
it's very graphical inviting. So we can draw out uh, these networks and through turning those data points into images, we can understand these structures or get a different kind of perspective than physics would give you. Yeah, absolutely. So you're taking all this complex information and visualizing it in these very extremely complex information networks. It seems like you'd be forced to simplify many structural and relational dimensions into something we can perceive visually. So what's lost in this translation process? Yeah, I think it's like there's always something that is that is lost in the translation process and i mean that that is that starts from recording the data and in what way what what is the order what is the magnitude at which we at which we look at something and that is always already giving us a certain perspective um, i can maybe talk about the case where we visualized the government structure of the usa so What my colleague, he's a computer scientist, what he did is he scraped all webs all .gov websites. And there are about 50 million domains, uh, .gov domains. So, and he scraped all of them. And then we looked at how these pages actually link to one another. And this uh, gave us the, the database for thinking about how how the government is basically structuring all its functions. And I mean, you have all kinds of decisions you have to make on all kinds of levels. What, what links, which ones are you collecting? How do you cluster the different functions? What are the different functions? So I think on each of these levels, there's like a kind of interpretation that we are doing to get to the images that, that I'm producing. Mm. And mm, I would say that that is always the case in science to some extent. Yeah, so it's, it sounds like what is lost in the translation process is not the right question. It's more like what can you take and create from the translation process that otherwise we wouldn't have access to because 50 million government websites, I, I, I really hope I never have to go through 50 million. <laughs> I barely want to go through yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's always a perspective, I would say. It's always something we always have to have to put some effort into our observations to get something back. And it's like just it's about how how good we are in that process and how clear we make that process and how how well it is organized. But you always need to do that. That's something without doing anything, you wouldn't get any research. You wouldn't have any data. You wouldn't have any. So it always needs someone who's doing this kind of things. And I think for me, it's then fascinating that this becomes so apparent within the visualization of data, but not so much in the collection of data in the storage of data and in the algorithms transforming the data, because all of these processes are much more hidden for us than the graphical displays. Hmm. Yeah. So you're really coming up with ways to, to turn things that we wouldn't be able to comprehend otherwise into something that we can relate to in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's a wonderful that's so idea. <laughs> What types of data inputs do you typically work with and how do you extract which relationships you'd like to explore? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the while I was working with Lazlo Barabasi, 
this was very much the research questions that were shaping and I was working in bigger teams. So that's where basically a lot of the data sets came from. And most of them were structured in this kind of two file formats where you have one list with notes, so entities, and then a different uh, file with the connections between those entities. That's how, how you usually store networks. Um, Nowadays, it's a bit different. Like at MetaLab, I have a lot of freedom and like my research also changed quite a lot, like both through the research that I'm doing through my PhD, but also the things that MetaLab allows me to do, which is a much more introverted look into the computer and the systems that allow us to create this graphics in the first place. So right now I'm currently interested in visualizing the structures that make it possible that us two have this conversation, even mm. if we're not in the same room. And, and what does it mean for us as a society to have this new entity, this new medium into play in place? Yeah, that's that's especially interesting right now with with Corona happening. There's so much unstructured data out there, information that's either not available to everybody or just not reported correctly or whatever. It seems yeah, like totally. being able to make sense of that unstructured data would be a very valuable thing for us to make decisions. Yeah, and I mean, like especially now, now in the the case of coronavirus, what I find so weird is that we have all this graphic representations of data, and normally it's like this the settings where countries are compared to one another and which country is where and how but it's a it's a weird kind of i find it a bit unsettling that this level of the state becomes such a big actor again mm. and that it's not uh, like the level of a city, the level of municipalities. I mean, there are like a lot of stages where we could look at and observe, but uh, most of the graphics that I see very much are about states and how states are ranked against one another. Well, that's interesting. So it's, it's maybe the, the natural breaks in the data that might emerge from some of your work might be different than what is the, the state level or the kind of the, the barriers, the boundaries that we put on it artificially. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how, I, th I think in the US it's, it's like that too, but in Germany, it's a case that each state collects the data differently and they have different methods, even like individual hospitals. So, but, but we are all merging this into this one level that we're looking at and that we're judging things by. And I'm not sure that this is always the, the best view. And it yeah. also gives this kind of rankings of countries and which country is doing better, which country is doing worse, instead of thinking about as a global problem. And I haven't mm -hmm. seen many people visualizing the data on the level of Europe, for example. So this whole idea of the European Union got totally lost mm. in the process of this uh, of this virus, and it's very much about the nation state again. So I find that a bit unsettling. Yeah, very very interesting. Well, your art and your research focuses a lot on the visualization of complex ideas and their interactions. Sometimes things can't necessarily be shown visually as as comprehensively. Have you experimented with other senses like audio? to further connect to the underlying infrastructure? 
Yeah, so so it's something that I'm playing with and that I'm exploring and I find it very fascinating. I'm still like getting drawn back to the visual in a lot of cases because yeah. it's just from a media theoretical point of view, when you read a text, it's a one-dimensional array through time we could say, because you're reading one word after the next. So if you're listening to me right now, you're listening to one word after another. And the same is true for sound. So sound is also one, one sound after the next. So when it comes to this graphic representation of data, we're switching. It's not time in most graphics for the first place is frozen. And we're using the two-dimensional space of a surface to represent things. And that puts different things into context and, and lets us compare things very differently than a text could or a sound cut. So, and that's something that, I mean, I'm fascinated with for five, six years now, and that's still uh, capturing my mind, what this could mean as a change for us in the way we look at the world. Yeah, yeah I can imagine even other senses eventually coming into this, like touch or things that aren't, I don't know if I'd be able to say touch is one-dimensional or if, if it's uh, you know more of a three-dimensional thing. But it'd be really interesting to see what other things you might be able to convey yeah. by combining some of those experiences. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. That's like, yeah, combining things and making them, making it more immersive. That's that definitely something that's interesting. So, so when you're working with data that is thousands or millions of dimensions, I'm, I'm assuming you can't think in million dimensional space. So what, what types of analytical techniques do you use to help you understand the data and, and kind of develop your initial approach? And how has that evolved over mm -hmm. time? I would like to discuss the term of dimensionality here just like a little bit because I find it fascinating that we that we talk about especially in machine learning artificial intelligence it's like this also like before where where it was about big data a lot of people say oh yeah that space is 100 dimensional or like 200 dimensions or 1 million dimensions but the term yeah. dimension is in computer science and mathematics very different to what we understand as dimensions. I mean, in a data set, a dimension could be the color of a thing. It could be the length, the distance, the weight, not just the perception. So I would say there's not a direct translation between what we call dimensional space in our world and what we understand within computer science to be dimensional. Does it make sense? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Because at some point, if you're just taking measurements from a 3D space around you and mapping that, mm -hmm. then that's a three-dimensional space, even though we call it, I don't know, a thousand dimensions, if you're able to get a thousand different points from it. Yeah, I think like looking into my into my living room right now, like that there would be, it would need millions of dimensions to store all the things that I perceive right now in the space. So somehow we as humans are already capable of taking in many more dimensions if we use the way dimensions are used in mathematics or computer science, then we're much more than three or four dimensional if you're including time. But we're actually having our perception is taking in much more information than that at any given point. Yeah, well, really interesting thought. How, how do you apply that 
when you're first approaching a data set or as you kind of get more comfortable with it and, and are deciding what you want to do with it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's more what I'm like currently involved in is this idea of critiquing or like understanding what it means to visualize data or what data means in the first place. So I'm very much interested how is the relationship between us and this data entity that we often connect to these terms like insight and truth and knowledge. How do they actually relate to the world that we live in? And in what way are they similar? In what way are they distinct? In what way do they have a different kind of way of being in the world than than we have so i think with all of that in mind it's 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 not that easy to apply it and say oh uh, because of that i'm now building the visualizations and this and that way it would be would be fantastic so often most probably in the outcome of the graphics you don't really see that all these thoughts went into it but yeah. it makes a difference for myself yeah i'm sure there's many, many iterations that you go through on completely different paths until you get to the thing that best represents what you're trying to convey or what you discover and want to convey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why why I also love to work in research because you have so much time. I mean, before, after I graduated my master's program, I worked in a newspaper for one project and everything was just so quick. I mean, you had two weeks, you basically, and that was a long project for them. Yeah. So you had like, you, you were able to finish one iteration and then that's it. And that's what it's used to be. And all the interesting questions were still hidden and were not visible. In research, like most of the projects that I'm working on, like they go for two, three years and we have iterations over iterations and you only see like a tiny fraction of that that becomes visible to the public. But it gives like a lot of space to imagine things and to reiterate on things. Oh, that's interesting. You're, you're bringing then the time dimension into it. So things like the government scraping, for example, in three years, that could change dramatically of what what the structure of many of those of those governments might be have you run mm -hmm. into that before where the, the thing that you're trying to communicate changes as you as you're building yeah you totally yeah i'm currently i have a project that is not online yet and i made the visualization i finished the project about three years ago that's what i thought And then the researchers saw the visualization and realized how many errors there are in the data set and wow. that they couldn't publish it in that way. And it was about 120,000 data points, uh, very text data, so really difficult thing. And they went through it by hand over the last three years, wow. and now we have a new data set. So it really wow. sometimes that these things that, that they evolve, then it really sets one back. But I mean, that's also, that that's a beauty that mm, this interfaces can do that and can really give such a different view perspective on the data. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's almost scary. You think about how many large data sets are out there that the right visualization has not been done to show some of those errors that, and we're making decisions based on things that aren't necessarily truth. Yeah. I mean, I have a, doing a PhD in philosophy lets you question truth on a very different <laughs> level. And, and I mean, that's a lot what, I, what I'm thinking about nowadays. It, it's like, what kind of truth, what kind of reality, what kind of insights 
can these graphics actually give? Well, what is mm. hidden in there? What kind of perspective, what kind of medium do they have? And, and how is it changing the way we perceive the world? Do you feel like that perspective that you want to convey when you create something comes out naturally? Or is it something that you kind of see a path forward and have to push forward to make it come out? Hmm. I would say it depends very much on the project. Like, for example, for, for the universe graphic, like my, my mm. colleagues were very much pushing me to, to do this visualization, to do this like three-dimensional graphic. And I, I was always pushing back in the beginning and saying like, no, we, 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 we've got like this two-dimensional screen and we need to work with that and we can't like have a depth dimension. And I like gave them a lot of different visualization versions and none of that worked. And then, then I made that yeah. graphic and it was really, it was fascinating to see. So there it was, I would say, really clear path from the, from the beginning. They were sure how it should look like. And it was like really few iterations while other, and I think that that's true for more abstract data sets. There, it, it's really like a formation and a coming up, especially if the structure is something that is more complex or holds more layers that you want to show and that you want to convey at the same time. Then it becomes really yeah. something interesting and something that one needs to craft. Oh, that's a very interesting process. So with things like different capabilities of measurement and processing with sensors and changes in advances in technology, things like uh, machine learning and AI, how have they kind of come together, this wave of technology to better help you represent some of these complex ideas? Mm -hmm. So currently, I don't think I'm using machine learning algorithms to help me coming up with better visualizations. I'm rather mm -hmm. using visualization to critique and to understand certain parts of machine learning and how mm. the systems are basically looking at the world and how that perspective might be different to the perspective that we have or might be truly false or might be mm, like discriminative or like there, there are a lot of things that that can go wrong in the systems. And I think we, we have a very, like on the surface, there's a lot of techno-positivism towards mm -hmm. like this kind of systems. But as soon as you look into it and you really make sense of what's going on, it becomes a, a different world. And I see visualization there as a very strong method to make these underlying systems visible. Yeah, it sounds almost like you're you're building a, a language for us to be able to interact with things that are too complex in their structure for us to be able to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's like in any way, that's like what, what is really happening in the computer? Like when we talk to one another now in this podcast, like how the signals are getting sent and stored, it's not really comprehensive to anyone so making graphics that can give a perspective into some of that is really fascinating and the closer you get the stranger this world becomes i mean it's really like at some level within the computer there are things going on that are really different to how we 
how we see them in these interfaces that are built to be as as humanly consumable as possible. Well, now you've terrified me that the audio isn't recording properly, but I, I hope it's all <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. I mean, I, on, on the screen here, I'm, I'm looking, uh, we use Zencaster for, for audio and or for recording. And I see your kind of sound bites as they pop up across the screen. And that's, mm. that's the only confirmation I have, but it's a, it's a way of kind of settling my nerves that something at least is being represented. Yeah, something is happening. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. we don't really know what. So, and that—that's, I think, in the, all these interfaces, it's always the case that it's only—it's mm. only a perspective on what's going on, and below that, there are a lot of things that are happening that we can't see and can't get in touch with. Ah, really interesting. So, let's talk more about applications then. So, how is the information we can extract from these complex networks useful? Are there any analogies or outcomes that we can draw that may impact our daily lives? Yeah, I I mean, like within each individual project, like these graphics, uh, these uh, visual representations were very much helpful for the researchers and also for a public to, to understand and make sense and see. So I think there are a lot of like these graphics can help on a lot of levels. Mm, what I'm like doing or what I, I got interested in through my research and my PhD is a question, what kind of, what kind of knowledge, what kind of insights are actually represented here and how is that specific to visualization? So I went through the, the literature on information visualization and tried to make sense of that. And it's fascinating because there are a huge amounts of books and papers out there who, who talk about insight, who talk about knowledge, uh, representations of this, of data visualization. But nobody really says how this works, how you get from mm. data to insight and how, what kind of insight is it? And uh, what are these the systems actually doing. And then for me, especially coming from design, is that, I mean, design is always something that we create. I'm like, I'm creating things. So how is my creation in contact with the creation of, of knowledge and of insights and what kind of... So, so those are the things that I'm trying to find answers to in the research that I'm doing now. I think that's where philosophy comes in and where this is the right level of looking at the systems. Yeah, so I understand that must be incredibly useful being able to approach problems in new ways by just showing information in ways that we wouldn't wouldn't have otherwise. Have you seen that sort of approach affect a decision? Do you have an example of, of one of your projects, for example, that may have driven a decision in research or come out with like a very specific outcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I maybe have two, two examples that go into very different ways. So when I visualized the government networks, I first had a layout to visualize the networks that's called a force-directed graph. And it's a very common technique to lay out network graphics. So what's happening is that each of the points, each of, each of the nodes repel each other and then the links between them they try to be as close together as possible 
so you have the small physics experiment within the computer that is creating the layout for these graphics. And because the network was so highly interconnected in the data set that I was looking at, this didn't really work. So they need like a very specific, this, this layouts need a very specific form to really function well. So, and then I started experimenting with other layouts and other forms of representation and mm-hmm. came up with one representation where I basically focused on a categorical system of the data, but also on how central the points are within the networks, within the network, how how many other connections they have to, to other nodes. And when I did that, there was like a hierarchical system coming out and it was very much, it looked like a hierarchy wow. rather than a network. Wow. And then the, the computer scientist that I worked with, he, he tried to compute that and try to find out how much of the network is actually a hierarchy and how much it, it is a network. And over 90% of the system that we looked at was hierarchical rather than network structured. So the graphic gave a new perspective on the data, and that led my coworkers, the scientists, to to observe something else, to look at the data from a different perspective, and that very much changed the course of that paper. Wow, so, so you're totally restructuring the way we think about problems just by saying this doesn't really seem right or that's too computationally intensive or whatever it is. And you can, you can totally turn it on its head. Yeah, I think that the graphic just gave a new perspectives onto the data set. And that led the researchers to approach it differently. And that then led to a whole different way of understanding the system and, and observing the system and then do calculations with it. Great. So. Yeah, another another example that I have is when I was working on the cosmic web, it was also extremely useful for the scientists to have this immersive 3D, three-dimensional visualization that they used for mainly for two things, to find uh, giant components, which means when the entire network uh, basically connects into one system, Mm-hmm. but also to compare different models so that's what they how they use the system but then once we published that paper there was like a many people visited the website and we had a lot of interviews and there was a lot of magazines that talked about that and blogs and we had interviews and a week later nobody cared anymore that's how uh, how fast track the internet is but then a few weeks later after that I realized that there was a spike in visits again and that people were visiting this page. And I was wondering, where do they come from? Nobody nobody contacted me or talked to me. So what are they doing and, and where do they where do they emerge from? And I, I saw that a lot of the clicks came actually from Russia and from Eastern European countries. And I looked at some of the websites that were talking about this and it was really like religious websites and I translated the websites and it says God's brain 
the the viewpoint of God's brain. So so people turn no the research around based on this graphics, and it became this this kind of page that kind of some churches looked at and and thought that researchers have found. <laughs> oh my gosh! And sorry, what's that one called? Is that one available on your website for people to see? Do you mean the, the bread of God? I mean, I have some screenshots, but the project is called Cosmic Web. Cosmic Web. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So, so, that, so that's you available can find through your that. website. If yeah, yeah, you can. yeah. Yeah. It's available through my, through my website too. Yeah. And that was like, that was also something that really led me to, to the research that I'm doing now and to how, how does it actually come that we use this graphics and what is, what is the perspective doing to this? What are different, different people come to this graphics from different viewpoints? And the scientists have had a very specific view, but other people did so too. And hmm. like, There is this uh, comparison between how our brain is structured and how the universe is structured and that people say, yeah, there's two things. They, they are the same and uh, somehow the universe must have come up with this one way of or those one organizing principle. But mm. I'm not so sure about that anymore because I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are observing the systems, that we are collecting this data in a specific way, and that we are representing it in the same way. So, I mean, yeah. in the 1800s, everybody thought that, or there are these ideas that everything is based on steam. So the human body is actually, we can make sense of it as steam because steam was the latest mm. technology. Nowadays, we have the internet and everything for us becomes the network and everything looks like a network and we observe everything as a network, but it might not be the underlying truth behind that. Yeah, I'm thinking just all of our data points, especially when we're trying to understand the universe, like come from one specific point in space in like this universal blink of an eye. Uh, Time-wise, yeah, if any yeah. sane data scientist would look at it, it would be tough to justify any sort of outcomes from just those data points. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, they within the project that I was working in, uh, the data came from a project called Illustris. It's a huge computational model of the universe. So it's based on observational data. So it's, but in the end, They are taking modulations, formulations that represent the universe and then have a supercomputer who runs this simulation. So all of this is basically a created system in a way. It's not that this is based on, it has a lot of layers of human interaction with the world mm. to be able to create this. So we are always interventing in the systems. We are designing to make these observations possible. Wow. It's interesting how the latest technology is, is what's guiding, guiding the way that we think about that. It's, I guess the people who were using Steam couldn't, couldn't fathom what networks would look like. So I'm intrigued to understand what yeah. this, this approach to discovering the next thing will, will help us understand or think that we understand. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. 
at the moment it's like very big topic to discuss the human brain as a computer so i mean it's another metaphor and the human brain is not a computer i mean it's like something we are not we're not functioning as the 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 laptop that i'm talking to right now we we're very different entities but there's always this connection that we are basing our thoughts and our way our assumptions of the world and the models that we're using on the things that we have at hand yeah everybody knows it's all based on steam anyway so <laughs> <laughs> so what aspect of your research could have the greatest impact on your area of study so what, what do you think could be meaningful to the world and how we see it yeah i think it's a difficult question for me to answer because i'm not even sure what field i belong to it's not that I'm a biologist and it's like very clear. I'm not sure if it is clear to biologists, but I mean, I have a background as in graphic design and in interface design. Then I worked in a physics lab. Now I'm working in this humanities lab. And at the same time, I'm doing my PhD in philosophy. So there's so many interconnecting layers. And I mean, that's what I love about visualization design because it's this kind of meta science which connects so many different fields of study. But I'm not really sure that I can pinpoint down, am I doing a contribution to philosophy? Am I doing a contribution to hmm. computer science? Am I doing... So it's very much in between all these things. But like something that I'm trying to open up with a theory that I'm writing about is to connect, to create a connection between design, between the study of knowledge and between computation and interfaces. So, but there's not really this one field which is dealing with all of these things. Yeah, well, it, it seems like you're kind of acting like something in between. So for, with your hierarchy example, you're able to take an analogy from another field or maybe another way of approaching things and bring that into the approach that you were then using. So I guess you, when you're saying meta science and the humanities, and you're connecting all these different branches together. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's it's totally fascinating, and I'm I'm very glad that I'm capable of exploring the world in that way, and that it's like that I'm not stuck in one field, but that it's, it's something where I have this, this open, open possibilities to explore all these different things through this language which visualization gives me. What are you excited about going forward? What projects or concepts are you trying to, or do you want to work on that maybe are you limited computationally or just haven't had the chance to get around to them? What's, what, what gets you energized about working in the field or in yeah. yeah, right now I'm, I'm learning to code uh, Shader. So it's like a really okay. low level uh, programming language. So it's like it's on the level of, of, of C++. And I'm very excited about that. So something that I've like explored the last couple of days was how to create randomness out of a sinus function. <laughs> So oh, cool. um, this really low level of computation where everything is just waves and like waves and functions are basically giving you the underlying possibility space. 
that then creates all these complex things as a interface and as text and as these little charts that tell me how loud I'm talking or not. So I'm currently fascinated by going as deep as possible into, into the computer to really understand what the systems are doing. That's like, that's one route that, that I'm interested in exploring currently. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to follow that thread on randomness for a second. So the way that I think about computers, and I feel like most people, it's very logical. It's, it's one or zero, like, you know what the outcome is going to be. But I'm guessing if you get to the like sub layer down to the, the lowest level possible, there's, there is randomness or things that we can't understand. How, how do you build something random out of something that we think is fundamentally logical? Yeah. So, so the things that I'm making, they're not, they're not really random, but what you do is you take a sinus wave. So like a wave that goes up and down and you really extend that and make it huge. And then you take the fraction of that. And that gives you some, either an image or a data set that looks pretty random in the first place, but it is obviously mm. not random because it's only a sinus function, but it's, mm. it's interesting to think about what randomness is for the computer and what it's not and what randomness means in our world. And if, if computation can actually create something as randomness. I, mean, I, I don't think so. But it's also fascinating that this really simple algorithms look pretty random to me. Oh, great. So and I'm curious, when you come up with these projects, do you have uh, pretty good flexibility on what types of things you're working on? Or do you have active projects you're working with other people on that have deadlines? Mm, so both. I have always, this is like the, that's my pet project. So I always have like one project that I'm doing on the yeah. side that has no deadlines that I'm playing around with and exploring things that I find interesting in that moment. And then I have other projects where I'm working with other people and that also oftentimes have deadlines and where it's uh, clear, but Still, I think science and working within research really gives me a lot of possibilities to not have such strict deadlines and be very open about my time and about the things that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's I basically never have a like deadline tomorrow with things that I really have to yeah. get done other than like any some entrances to like research papers or publications or, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's a very fortunate situation to work like that. Yeah. It sounds really wonderful. I'm glad you get to do it. So the people listening to this podcast, how might they get more involved in understanding what's, what goes into this sort of these types of projects? How would they support the, these sorts of kind of information transfers, translation in their everyday lives? Hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm, I mean, there are a lot of like, fantastic classes to learn visualization online. We could maybe link to some. What I find, yeah, what's interesting is this, there's a lot about how to learn to visualize and a lot about like the techniques that go into it. But there's much less about critiquing or thinking about what does it mean? How is it a representation of the world? And what is left out? I think that's much harder to find. Mm. Currently, there, there are some good publications on that. One is called Data Feminism, and the other one is called All Data Are Local. I'm not sure if you have like 
a place to store links, but I'm very happy to. Yeah, to I'll give put those, that up on the website um, you. In, yeah. in the description of the podcast for sure. Yeah. I, I think it might also be interesting for people to think about your question, like what, not only what's there, but what's missing and how are we kind of conceptualizing things within the boundaries that we have, especially mm -hmm. with the COVID corona going on right now. Yeah, uh, totally. Maybe an interesting totally. question to think on. If yeah, yeah. And that, that, that is basically for me the threshold where, where philosophy comes in and where these questions of media and of what are we missing? What is not represented here? And how is that shaping our worldview and our understanding? That is very much the point where, where this perspective of, of the thing that we can't articulate, that is not stored in data, comes in and becomes interesting. And that's what I'm researching about. Yeah, I'd encourage uh, people listening to this, if there's anything you think of, whether corona-related or otherwise, about how We might need to reframe the way that we think about data. Please comment wherever wherever you can. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Great. Yeah. So one last question for you, Kim. For all yeah. of our episodes, we ask we ask this just to kind of get a feel for for you and your research. So if the name of the podcast is somebody call a doctor, so in what sort of emergency should somebody call you? I mean, we can we can maybe apply that to the coronavirus pandemic that's going on right now, and I think I like. This critical look onto data, onto the way we encapsulate the world within the systems is utterly important here because, like, for example, I just found out that the number of deaths, it's not that people die from coronavirus. They can't, they can't measure that. They can only say that somebody died who also had coronavirus. So this is very much mm. changing what this data means and mm. the method of how this is collected and how this is like the number of tests, for example, very much like determine the number of how many people you find out who have coronavirus. So if we have a chart yeah. which only tells us about how many people are infected per country, this is meaningless because it's very much about how many tests have been done and then all the restrictions. I mean, every country has other restrictions. So we can't really yeah. trust data in the way... So data, the, the term comes from Latin as a given. And I think this is a totally wrong word. It's not given. It's very much made. It's created. It's designed and it's structured in a huge set of system, systematic approaches that vary tremendously. So and thinking about all this and what then this individual numbers can tell us, I think that's where, where I can help and where I can be critical and, and give other reflections on topics. Well, Kim, that's absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for talking us through your research and kind of your philosophy on how you approach these problems and how we might be able to as well. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Somebody Call a Doctor. Today, we've been talking with Kim Albrecht about his philosophy and research on information, how we can communicate with and about it. For more information on Kim and links to everything mentioned today, check out our website, somebodycallaphd.com. If you know a recent PhD candidate or graduate who's doing interesting work worth sharing, let us know by emailing us at somebodycallaphd at gmail.com. See you next time on Somebody Call a Doctor.